I might be in the minority, but I think Joshua Tree is a is a one day park. Um, mm. And I definitely think that Death Valley is a two to three, maybe even four day park. So I prefer Death Valley. Oh my gosh, that like that's like making a real statement there. Like I've yeah. never heard. I'm so, throwing I'm, it down, man. <laughs> you're you're throwing down a claim. Death Valley better than Joshua Tree. I love that. Hi everyone, I'm Stephanie. And I'm Jeremy. And we are the authors of Where Should We Camp Next? And Where Should We Camp Next? National Parks. This season we are back with a brand new RV and brand new adventures. Join us now as we cover the best campgrounds, the best rigs, the best food, and the best gear to bring with you when you go. So pull up a chair and join us around the digital campfire. This is the RV Atlas. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of the RV Atlas. We have a killer episode for you today. Back on the show is Shelly Bailey Shaw, and she's the founder of Kid Tripster, which is an online family travel resource with a dedicated outdoors section. Uh, and Shelly has written about many national parks for Kid Tripster over the years. And Shelly is the most experienced traveler I have ever met in my life. She's incredible to talk to. She has visited 61 of our 63 national parks. And this summer, she's hitting the last two. So she will have completed all 63 of our national parks. Now, after she does that, we're going to have her back on the show later this summer. But for this episode, she's going to share her five most underrated national parks in the country. And she's speaking from experience. A lot of people say, oh, I think this was underrated, but yet they haven't experienced that much of whatever they're talking about. When Shelly says a park is underrated, I mean, like, she's been to almost all of them. Uh, so this is a terrific episode. We're going to talk about Great Sand Dunes National Park in Colorado. We're going to talk about Death Valley in California and three others. We're going to go into detail about what she loved about those parks. We'll talk a little bit about your options for camping or RVing in those parks, if that's even possible. Uh, because there are cases here where you cannot do that, or Shelly doesn't recommend that you do that. It's a terrific episode, and we get sidetracked a bunch of different times just talking kind of like travel philosophy, national parks, what makes a great national park, tips for planning your own amazing trip like this. There is no one I would rather talk about national parks with than Shelly Bailey Shaw. She is an absolute expert. She's going to really bring some great recommendations for us for five underrated parks. And it's super timely, too, because we all know that there's overcrowding at some of our major national parks like Yellowstone, Yosemite, and Zion. So here are five options that are definitely going to be uh, a bit less crowded than some of those, maybe a lot less crowded. So let's dive in and talk to Shelly Bailey Shaw about her five most underrated national parks. But before we do so, we have a sponsored message from our friends at Yogi Bear's Jellystone Park Camp Resorts. Our family has been staying at Jellystone Park locations for 12 years. There are more than 75 Jellystone Park locations across the United States and Canada, and each one is unique, but our kids love them all because each Jellystone Park location has fun attractions like pools, water slides, splash grounds, mini golf, laser tag, and jumping pillows. Plus, there are tons of activities all day and all night long, such as foam parties, dance parties, wagon rides, 
rides, tie-dye, and movie nights. They even have themed weekends like Chocolate Lovers Weekend, Christmas in July, and Halloween weekends in the fall. Of course, we can't forget the fun of hanging out with Yogi Bear, Boo Boo, and Cindy Bear. And at Jellystone Park, you can stay in your RV or enjoy one of their awesome glamping accommodations as many of their locations offer luxury cabins, yurts, covered wagons, and more. Make Jellystone Park a part of your family's vacation in 2023 because it's not just a campground. It's a Jellystone Park. To learn more and to book your vacation today, visit JellystonePark.com. That's JellystonePark.com. And please, don't forget to tell Yogi Bear that Jeremy and Stephanie said hello. Good morning, Shelly, and welcome back to the RV Atlas. It's good to see your face. How are you? I'm good. It's bright and early here on the West Coast. How is life in the Pacific Northwest? I've always been very jealous of where you live. How has your spring been? Uh, it has been warm. Uh, I think it's going to be like 85 degrees today. We're having an unusually warm spring, which uh, I don't think I've ever said in Oregon before. So I'll take it, even though it's probably caused by, you know, global warming. And you are about to accomplish. So I, I'm literally in awe of, of you guys. Okay. <laughs> so and, and it's you and your husband are about to have gone to all 63 of the national parks. You have two more. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, technically, I'm the only one who's going to hit 63 okay. because there's been a couple here and there that either my husband hasn't been with me and I've been on a trip with one of my sons. Um, they're, my sons and my husband are about five short, um, so they, they still have some uh, some places to visit. But mom is going to hit number 63 in July. Now, are they sort of hellbent on also accomplishing this since they're so close? I mean, do they have plans to hit hit the ones they need to hit? I don't I don't know if my husband is ever going to uh, achieve this goal. I have hope for the kids. Uh, they have more time. Um, but the ones they're missing, uh, we just recently went to American Samoa. And uh, that is a fairly expensive trip that mom and dad are not financing. So I think it's going to be uh, later in life when they get there. Now, how long has this been a goal? Did, did you just like go to a lot of national parks and then all of a sudden you were like, well, maybe we can do all of them? Or has this been like a very intentional thing for you for many, many years? It has been, I would say, intentional. We started going to national parks when my youngest was five and my oldest was eight. And that first RV trip uh, was with a rented RV, and we did 10 national parks in three weeks, um, which I don't advise people to do. Um, but it was a, the, the Utah loop um, and then dipping down into Southern California and then coming um, full circle through uh, Northern California and then back to Utah. Um, but, you know, we did the first 10. We had such a fantastic time. Our national parks are such an incredible incredible asset that I was like, you know what, let's keep going. Let's do this. And um, then it's, that's when I looked up how many national parks there were. And at the time it was fewer than 63. As you know, they've added a few since then. Um, but yeah, we just we just kept at it. And uh, once we owned our own RV um, and did a couple of cross-country road trips, um, we were able to, to tick them off. But um, I don't like saying ticking them off because it sounds like we're we have a checklist, right? Um, we enjoyed uh, nearly all of them. There are a few that I don't think are worthy of the national park 
title, but um, as you and I have discussed, that's a different podcast topic. <laughs> I I, th- I think I remember you talking trash about Black Canyon of the Gunnison. Am I am I am I remembering that correctly? That that is correct. But keep in mind, now that I've been to almost all sixty three, I have pretty like high standards for the national park. I also live in the West, and so um, again, my standards are pretty high. But Black Canyon of the Gunnison is a fine place, um, but. It's not one of my favorite national parks because it's it's really difficult to experience. You're basically experiencing it on the rim. Um, and it just it I don't know, it just didn't it didn't excite me. It didn't have the the drop dead gorgeous scenery that some of our other parks have. Um, it can be difficult for folks to get to. Uh, it's in Colorado, but a rather remote area of Colorado. So it's not one of my favorites. So tell us exactly what's left this summer. Like, what's the plan to to complete this? So I'm very excited about these last two parks. Definitely the most remote of the 63. Uh, they're Gates of the Arctic and Kubuk Valley, uh, which are in the far reaches of Alaska. No roads, no trails, no cell service. And flying into Anchorage and 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 going from there is that the basic plan? Yeah, we we fly into Anchorage and then fly uh, to an Inuit village where we stay overnight. And then the next morning we get on a bush plane with a guide and uh, we are flown to Gates of the Arctic, dropped, see in two days. Um, And then they come back, pick you up drop you in Kubuk Valley, see you in another two days, um, and then that's how you do it. Um, these parks are very difficult to get to, um, and we've had to have this reservation with this outfitter for two years because the window, the visit window, um, weather-wise, is so short. So we've been looking forward to this for a long time. Um Having been RV owners for, you know, decades, we are not backcountry campers, but um, we are backcountry camping. There are tents involved, um, much to my husband's chagrin, um, but he's going to manage. It'll be fine. It'll be an adventure. Adventure is the word. This makes Yellowstone sound like Disney World. Like this makes oh, like yeah. Yellowstone or Glacier sound like like easy and not adventurous at all. So after you complete the 63 We'll we'll definitely have you back, and there's there's a, a hundred different things we could talk about, but we'll maybe talk about some of the national parks you cannot go to by RV, kind of flip the script a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Awesome. So today's topic, we're talking about, um, f- I believe, five underrated national parks, and you believe that these, people know what some of them are, but they're they're not those bucket list national parks necessarily right. for people. And as so many people got interested in national parks during the pandemic, it seems like they all wanted to go to the same five national parks like Yellowstone, mm-hmm. Yosemite, Zion, you know, maybe Glacier, Grand Teton. So I, I love doing this type of topic where it's like, hey, there's a lot of other great options out there. Um, so why don't we dive in? All right. So your first underrated national park and and you are speaking from a world of experience when you say most underrated you're not just basing that on the you know 10 or 20 you visited you're basing that on just about all of them um tell us about great sand dunes national park in colorado and why you think it's underrated well 
I would say this park ranks as one of our favorites because it was just really fun for the kids. I mean, this park boasts several different ecosystems. There's grasslands, wetlands, aspen forests, tundra, um, but it's this 30 square mile dune field that's really the big draw here. And you, you know, you want to start your day here early because by the afternoon, that sand temperature is reaching like 150 degrees depending on the time of year. So, um, you know, here I re recommend hiking to high dune at sunrise um, or certainly no later than 7 30 in the morning um, afterwards you know it's time for some fun um, you can choose from sandboarding or sand sledding there's a store just on the outside of the park that rents the the boards and the sleds that are specially designed for sand and trust me snow sleds pieces of cardboard you know those round saucers they don't work on sand we've tried it doesn't work um, so go ahead and, and rent those um, after an hour or so, you'll be absolutely exhausted because you'll have been climbing up and down these sand dunes. And that's the time that um, you head to the creek. So um, Mendona Creek is at the base of the dune field. And our family spent the rest of the day there. Um, it's a great like water playground. And it has this phenomenon called surge flow. It's where these ripples of waves just like appear out of nowhere in the river. It's really cool. Um, and this creek is like the one of the only places in the world where this happens. So I think that's awesome. Um, we also like Great Sand Dunes because it's one of the few national parks that allow dogs, even on the dune fields. Um, so our Labrador had a fabulous time at uh, Great Sand Dunes. Um, dark skies here for stargazing at night. They have a lot of ranger programs that are uh, around astronomy. Um, and if you aren't, if you happen to be there on a full moon, they have these really neat um, ranger walks that are like the moonwalks on the dunes. And I'm, we weren't there during a, a moon, full moon, but I've seen pictures and they're really stunning. So um, while I like White Sands National Park in New Mexico, I like Great Sands better because of the addition of the water what i mean that's so cool because it sounds like you're gonna get kind of hot and sweaty and then you get to swim and cool off and relax it sounds super uni unique now sand boarding is that standing as you're like almost like a surfboard and then like sand sledding like you're sitting yes exactly and my youngest uh, is the type of kid that only has to try something once and then boom, he's an expert. So um, he, like sandboarding and snow, snowboarding, uh, water skiing, that, that's all in his wheelhouse. So he really enjoyed this, um, picked it up super quickly. Mom, not so much. I did try. I am better at sand sledding uh, than I am sandboarding. Um, but, you know, it's fun. It's just fun to try something new. So was this one of the like overall family favorites and and a real favorite for your kids because they're you know adventurous and outdoorsy and it had that 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 high adventure kind of thing going? Yeah, I think especially for like you know uh, late elementary, early middle school, like this is a great park um, because of those activities that I think really interest kids. And you're going to want to rent those things the day before, I guess. Obviously, yes. I mean, if you're if you're saying you want to get get up really early, because obviously it gets just gets so hot, right? Yes, which means you're paying for a two day rental. Um, but I would do that rather than going into the park, coming back out of the park, renting, going back into the park. I it's it's not worth it. Just do the two day rental. 
And there is a, I think, a very popular campground there that's RV-centric to some degree, right? Yeah, I definitely recommend staying in the park, in this national um, park. It's called um, Pinion Falls uh, or Flats, Pinion Flats. Um, so you can take advantage of the evening ranger programs because you're staying there in the park. Um, know that there is a, a length limit in that park, 35 feet. We had a, a fairly large rig at the time, and I do remember that the, the loop around the campground was a little tight. So um, I would take that to limit seriously. And is that right like up the road from the dunes, or is it right next to the dunes, the campground? It's practically right next to the dunes. Like um, You can walk from the RV park to the creek and the dunes. So, um, you know, we had a class A, we never, we never move um, our RV at this park. And so that was great because it was super convenient. I I was really excited to see this next one on your list. Now, I've said a hundred times on the RV Atlas podcast that Olympic National Park is is my favorite national park, which really surprises people. Um, But Washington State also has North Cascades National Park, which is really Mm -hmm. the definition of of an underrated park. I I don't think a lot of people get to this one. So so what did you know, why do you recommend it? What, What do you love about it? So I live in Oregon. So driving to North Cascades National Park is not that difficult for me. It's located in northern Washington state along the Canadian border. And I think this park is a less busy version of Glacier National Park. And I don't say that lightly because Glacier National Park is one of my, you know, top three favorites. Um, The topography here is really similar to Glacier. You have those fantastic mountain views, that aquamarine, alpine lake water, the, the meadows of wildflowers and very similar wildlife. We did see a bear off trail here uh, when we were visiting North Cascades um, that has some really challenging hiking, just like Glacier. And if you hike high enough, just like Glacier, you'll find snow. And again, my youngest has never seen a lake that he didn't want to jump into, even when it was partially covered with ice. And that is what he did here. Um, There are plenty of campgrounds to choose from. I will say that we really like this, uh, this town, this little town called Winthrop. Uh, it has sort of those Wild West vibes, uh, kind of reminds me of uh, Medora outside Theodore Roosevelt National Park, which you just talked about a couple of weeks ago. So highly recommend North Cascades. And that's so interesting, too, that you're saying it's it's more akin to Glacier than than to Olympic. And that totally makes sense. I mean, Olympics on the Pacific Ocean. Um, so but mm-hmm. but two amazing national parks in one state. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up North Cascades. Now, is Medora's maybe a little cheesy and touristy? Is, is Winthrop have like a cheesy touristy thing or does it have maybe more of a, an authentic Western vibe? It, I mean, it's touristy, but I don't I don't want to call it cheesy. I mean, it's um, it's just a cute, really cute town with uh, sort of that the Western storefronts, uh, wood buildings, a great coffee shop. Um, so I think it's really it's really enjoyable. And, and about how far from Seattle is North Cascades? Like if somebody had a you know major case of wanderlust and wanted to just fly into Seattle, uh, what kind of drive are you talking about to then get out to North Cascades? You know, coming from Seattle is a different direction than we went. My guess would be at least three hours. 
Um, because you know how it is once you start getting up into mountain roads, uh, time slows down a little bit, but it's a, it's a good three hours. And I should mention, you know, Washington also has Mount Rainier National Park. Um, and so, you know, you can easily do three national parks in the state of Washington. What a great trip. I mean, what a bucket list kind of trip. And I don't think people think of, of doing that in Washington State, you know, heading to Washington State to do those, those three. Epic, epic. Yeah, you're right. All right. We have three more underrated national parks from, from Shelley, who is an, an expert, like a real expert on America's national parks. Uh, but before we dive into the next three, we have a sponsored message from our friends at Camco. Camco is one of our favorite companies in the outdoor recreation industry. For more than 50 years, they have remained a trusted North Carolina-based manufacturer specializing in innovative products for the RV, marine, outdoor living, and outdoor recreation markets. You may know them best by their American-made Rhino sewer hoses, Taste Pure water filters, EvoFlex drinking water hoses, and TST toilet chemicals, but their lineup of products doesn't end there. Camco continues to deliver products that bridge the gap between you and your next adventure. From portable grills and campfires to ease lift hitches and power grip electrical adapters, they seem to be doing it all. There's a saying that if you own an RV, you are sure to own a Camco product or two, and it's true. This spring, we are stocking up our brand new RV with go-to Camco products like their collapsible laundry basket and their life is better at the campsite dishes and mugs. Head on over to CampcoOutdoors.com to check out all of the cool stuff that Camco makes and get 10% off your entire order with our discount code RVAtlas10. That's CampcoOutdoors.com and use discount code RVAtlas10 for 10% off your entire order today. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We are here with Shelly Bailey Shaw, who is about to accomplish something amazing this summer. Uh, she has two more national parks to go, and then she can say that she has been to all 63 of America's national parks. Now, if if more get added, you got to get on. I know. <laughs> there are rumors that um, the, the, the Delaware Water Gap National Recreation Area could become a national park. Are there people pushing for it, which doesn't mean it will happen, okay. but the, there's a movement of people that would like that to happen, and um, they're sort of petitioning for it, and that is how it, it can start. Um, okay, so let's go to Death Valley for our third most underrated national park. Tell us why you love this one and why people should put this on their bucket lists. Well, I know that you've covered Death Valley in depth on a previous podcast, so I, I, I won't go into great detail, but I do think this park continues to be underrated. It is surprisingly diverse and vast. Um, we spent two days here on our visit, and I think everyone wished that we had had another two days to explore. Um, so some highlights for us, we enjoyed um, the Mosaic Canyon hike where you kind of wind through this narrow corridor of polished rock before it just like opens up into this, this wide canyon. Um, you can also hike the Mesquite Flat Sand Dunes. Um, these are rather bizarre sand dunes. They're formed by three different types. I didn't even know there were different types of sand dunes until I went here, but there are crescent sand dunes, linear and star-shaped, and this particular location has all three. Um, of course, Death Valley's claim to fame is its elevation. So at Badwater Basin, you're standing at 
282 feet below sea level. That's the lowest spot in North America. And you can turn around and they have signage up on top of this this hill behind um, so you can see where sea level is. And so you'll be amazed <laughs> at like how low you really are. Um, you can also drive the scenic nine mile loop called the Artist Drive. It's surrounded by these hills that have like ribbons of um, like dark brown and caramel. Um, you know, it kind of made me, it was like a, an ice cream sundae. I, I could have been hungry, but like, um, you know, it's like, it looks like chocolate and caramel coming off the rocks. It's really beautiful. Um, and if you have extra time, which unfortunately we didn't on this trip, you can head out to the, the mysterious racetrack. Um, that's a dry lake bed where they have these rocks, some that are like 700 pounds in weight, and they mysteriously slide and leave these long tracks behind them. So we didn't get a chance to see that. I've seen pictures. I think it would be really cool. So um, lots of variety at Death Valley. How did you do Death Valley? Was Did, did you just go and, and do that and that was the, the whole trip? Or were you comboing it with other other national parks in the region? Uh, just if somebody wants to go to Death, Death Valley, is there like a, you know, um, a route you would recommend or other spots to hit? Yeah, we did it on a spring break week and started in Palm Springs and then uh, worked our way through Joshua Tree and then around to Death Valley and back. That sounds like an amazing trip. Now, obviously, you're not you're not saying that Joshua Tree is an underrated national park. Uh, how do they compare? Do they are they to two totally different parks? Are there any similarities in the in the feel for visiting those two parks? I think they're completely different parks, um, and I might be in the minority, but I think Joshua Tree is a is a one day park, um, and I definitely think that Death Valley is a two to three, maybe even four day park. So I prefer Death Valley. Oh my gosh, that like that's like making a real statement there. Like I've yeah, never heard. I'm so, throwing I'm, it down, man. <laughs> you're you're throwing down a claim. Death Valley better than Joshua Tree. I love that. And of course, you can do both and decide for yourself. Um, so is and it, it's is really it, because of the variety, right? Like Joshua Tree is one note for me. Mm. Um, it is just the the landscape is very similar. There's bouldering. There's the wacky trees. Um, but that's really the, you know, that's what that, that park has to offer. Whereas I think Death Valley has multiple um, ecosystems and multiple things to see. I know exactly what you mean by the one note. That was such a great way to put it. And it's an amazing note, I'm sure, right? Yeah. Like Badlands National Park, one note, you know, um, two days max. You yep. could really do, you know, a, a full day in Badlands. And when I say that to people, they think that I don't like Badlands. No, like I loved Badlands. Um, but then I say, you know, Custer State State Park I could do four or five days because of right? that variety. So I know exactly exactly what you mean. Now mm -hmm. you went in the spring. Is that is that the best time of year to go for obvious reasons? Oh yeah, absolutely. Early spring or late fall um, are really the only time I would recommend going to Death Valley. It was warm in early spring. Now, I don't know the exact details on this, but I believe that some of the campgrounds are even closed in the summer uh, because yes. it gets it gets so hot. Um, yes. So spring is a good time. And that's what Lauren Eber was saying when we had her on, that kind of spring desert camping, such a, such a wonderful time to go. Now, what about choosing a place to stay? Any, any tips there when you visit Death Valley? 
Well, because of its size, I would suggest you stay where you play. Um, so in other words, plot out and, and, and plan your move, how you're going to move around the park and then stay at the closest campground or, or lodgingly, um, lodging accordingly. We started our stay in the central part of the park near Mosaic Canyon. Um, so that meant we stayed at Stovepipe Wells RV Park. Frankly, it's nothing more than a gravel parking lot with hookups, um, but it is near those hikes. Uh, we also stayed at the ranch at Furnace Creek, uh, which was really packed. Um, it's a very odd RV park as far as its layout, but it does have one saving grace, and that is its large resort-like pool. So the best strategy, I think, in Death Valley is get up at the crack of dawn, explore the park, and then in the afternoon, retreat to the pool. Oh my gosh! I it's just it sounds it sounds amazing. Um, and I, the spring sounds like the absolute best time to go. Um, so anything else on Death Valley that you want to mention? I think that covers it. And we have more resources for you. Like, so if you're listening and you want to learn more, Shelly has some cool articles that she did for KidTripster.com. So if you go to the rvatlas.com, we'll have the show notes and we'll link to those articles. And I'll also link to the episodes with Lauren Eber from a year ago on, on Death Valley, Joshua Tree, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so let's go to Carlsbad Caverns. Uh, tell us why you think this is um, still a great national park, bucket list worthy and worth a visit and underrated. Yeah, so Carlsbad Cavern in New Mexico is fairly well known, um, but I put it on this list for two reasons. One, in my opinion, it's the best cave park in the system. Better than Mammoth, better than Wind Caves, and certainly better than Great Basin. Um, and second, it's really well run. Um, it has a nice visitor center, a fabulous gift shop. I know you love your national park gift shops. Um, and it has really good ranger programs. I do think my impression of this park was influenced by a really unique opportunity that we had um, to go into the cave with a ranger first thing in the morning and walk in pitch dark and then go around and flip on all the lights. And it just made for these wow moments when the lights came on and you saw for the very first time just how immense um, this cave system is. And the lighting is really well done in this particular um, cave system. So I, I, I really, it has so many different cave features all in one place that I just think it's, um, it's a really unique spot. Um, you also need to plan your trip so that you can see all the bats exit the cave um, in the early evening. They have a ranger program and you know, you're waiting and then all of a sudden, whoosh, all the bats come out and it's, it's quite a spectacle. You're making a lot of like these awesome claims here and you're just blowing by <laughs> them, right? So, so Death Valley, better than Joshua Tree, okay? Carlsbad mm -hmm. Caverns, better than Mammoth Cave. That's, that's a real claim. Um, that's it's true. Su that's surprising. I, I, I speak from experience. It's true. You do. And, and, but just tell me why. I believe you. I mean, like, why would you pick Carlsbad Caverns over Mammoth? I mean, you, you did mention it's really well run. And just is it the overall experience or literally the caves are more fascinating? I found the caves to be more fascinating because, as you know, when you go into a cave system, um, there are all different kinds of features beyond your stagmites and your stalactites. Um, the all the caves form in different ways and i think 
Carlsbad has the best collection of those different kinds of formation. Um, the one thing it doesn't have that Wind Cave has is the, um, I think they call it box. I'm not going to get this right, but there's a, like a box-ish kind of feature that Wind Caves has that I don't think they have at Carlsbad. Um, but I just, I think that it was just such a spectacle um, and just a really beautiful um, cave system and very accessible. Um, sometimes, you know, when you go into these caves, you're, you're down on your knees and you're crawling and like, depending, depending on what tour you take. Um, I appreciated here that this cave was able to be enjoyed by everyone. There were a lot of older people here, their families with strollers here. Um, and it just, I, I like it when something is accessible to all. Now, our topic's underrated national parks, but I also, I just want your hot take on New Mexico because, you know, we've done a series over the years on underrated states. And we, we didn't do New Mexico, but I wanted to do New Mexico as an underrated state for RV travel. I mean, would, would you agree that, you know, this is an underrated national park, but also like the state of New Mexico is, is, is underrated, I think, for RV travel? I, I agree. I really enjoy New Mexico um, because you not only have Carlsbad, but you have White Sands um, that's uh, just really close by. Um, we visited one after the other. And then you also have the town of Albuquerque. I have spent a week in Albuquerque, really enjoyed it. Fabulous food, um, great people. And there are a lot of other Native American sites in that area um, that I think are, are worth visiting. So I agree with you. I enjoy New Mexico. Um, again, spring and fall, probably the best time to visit. I think it's just a location issue that it's just so far away for so many of us to get there. And I agree. Albuquerque is, is a, a great town, Route 66, and just a great, mm -hmm. great town for, for food. All right. Let's I think go, that, you know, when we, some of these more remote places like, um, Big Bend and in Texas and uh, Guadalupe um, Mountains, we did these on like cross country you you know road trips. So like we live in Oregon, so every everything is a is a drive. Um, but we've gone cross country like this three times, and each time I I pick a different route, and we we hit a different sequence of national parks. So this was on a trip where um, we drove Oregon to Florida. And then on the way home, we took a Southern route through, uh, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, then into the uh, desert Southwest and then North. So you're making me realize that in terms of having this goal of visiting 63 national parks, which I think a lot of people do, a fair number of people do, that the RVer has a huge advantage over somebody that, that typically would do like a hotel vacation because you, you're hitting spots on the way as opposed to flying from, from one place to another place. And it almost really sounds to me like if you didn't do those big cross-country trips, like you wouldn't even mm. be close to, to the 63 national parks. So the RV seems kind of pretty pivotal. In, and, and, and you've done a bunch of them not by RV, obviously, for obvious reasons. Right. But those RV trips were the foundation. And in those... Not to put you on the spot, but in those three cross-country RV trips, about how many of the parks did you do? It doesn't have to be exact, but how many did you knock out? I would say that on these big trips, we would do in the neighborhood of 10. So that's like in those three trips, you kind of did half of the parks to some degree. Yeah, and then the other ones we would do uh, in kind of smaller loops. So 
for example, Colorado. Colorado has three national parks. So we um, took, I think it was probably seven to 10 days and did Colorado um, or Yellowstone. Obviously, we're going to do Yellowstone with uh, Grand Teton, you know, and, and that was a week loop. Um, but I agree with you. I'm not sure that we would have uh, accomplished this um, as well. It wasn't easy, but as as easily as we did um, without having an RV. I, I don't I can't really imagine doing this without an RV. Was there ever a time where you were like, oh, crap, we got to get to this one. And you kind of maybe didn't quite want to or like it was inconvenient, but it was more like, all right, we're we're crossing this one off the list. And I would do the same thing. I don't think there's anything, you know, uh, phony about doing that. But but I'm sure at some point it was like hard to get to one or it took you out of the way. Yeah, I can think of a couple that were like that. Um, one that immediately came to mind was Congaree uh, National Park in South Carolina. Again, we live in Oregon. <laughs> so, um, and Congaree never made it onto one of these sort of longer itineraries. Um, so we took a spring break and actually flew to um, Charleston and stayed on um, uh, Kiowa Island and then did a day trip to Congaree, um, because in my opinion, it's not worth more than a day trip, um, and did like a canoe paddle through the swamps of Congaree. And that's how we that's how we checked that one off the list. I, I got a little sidetracked. So last question on Carlsbad Caverns before we go to Alaska. And, and of course, say anything you want to say if you left anything out. Um, no RV camping, no camping inside that national park. So like, what are your options? Or how did you guys do that? Yeah, no, we stayed at the nearest RV park, uh, which is called White's City RV Park. Um, it's unremarkable, um, but that's not why you're there. So we literally pulled in after the bats and pulled out the next morning um, and spent zero time in that RV trip beyond uh, sleeping. And I, I think there's a KOA there too. There's like a couple options like that, but that sometimes yeah. that's what it's going to be like when you're when you're trying to visit a national park where the campground is not a huge part of the experience. It's just your base camp. All right, we're going to come back in a second, and we're going to talk about Wrangell St. Elias National Park in Alaska. And Shelley's like going to be like an Alaska expert for goodness' sake after this summer. Uh, but before we knock off that last park and then talk a little bit more about a few other things about national parks. We have a sponsored message from our friends at GoRVing. GoRVing's website, GoRVing.com, is packed with all of the information you need to get started and go RVing. Check out GoRVing's Get Started tab to find information from real RVers about buying an RV, renting an RV, finding a campground, and a comprehensive first-timers toolkit. The Buying an RV section includes a complete guide to buying a new RV and tips for visiting national parks. The Renting an RV section explores your options for trying before buying. The Finding a Campground section lets you search for campgrounds by state. The First-timers toolkit is a robust set of blog posts and how-to videos that will turn you into an expert RVer in no time at all. Go RVing Get Started tab is packed with the content you need to become a more experienced RVer and have fun doing it. And this is just a small sample of the content you will find there. To find out more, head on over to GoRVing.com. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We are here with Shelly, and she is talking about five underrated national parks 
She's throwing down all kinds of controversial claims and opinions about the national parks, which are completely based on her experience, having been to 61 of the 63, and she's going to knock off the last two this summer. Uh, Our last underrated national park is Wrangell St. Elias, and this one is huge, correct? Yeah. You know, and I have saved my favorite underrated park maybe one of my top three favorite of all time at national parks for last. Um, And while this is a drop dead, gorgeous Alaska park, it's really about the experience my family had here. Um, Wrangell St. Elias is the country's largest national park. That might surprise some people. Um, It's 13.2 million acres. So to put that in perspective, that's six times the size of Yellowstone. Four major mountain ranges converge inside this park with nine of the 16 highest peaks in the United States. So when I use the word grand to describe this park, I mean, it, it, it doesn't even begin to do it justice. Is it also, I, I, this is a strange question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is it intimidating almost? Is it, is it, is it almost like a little frightening to, to be in, in this kind of wilderness? Yeah, it it definitely is remote with limited services and the park service has divided it up into four areas. And so there, of course, there is no way you can explore all corners of this park. So we focused on the central section and the small towns of um, McCarthy and Kennecott. Um, And this is where I have to admit that I wouldn't visit this park by RV. You actually can't get to where I'm telling you to go um, by RV. It's a seven hour drive from Anchorage and the last 60 miles of uh, this this journey are is on this like teeth chattering gravel road where you can't go faster than 35 miles an hour. Um, The road ends at a footbridge where you park your car you cross the footbridge and then you board a shuttle the last couple of miles to Kennecut um, Glacier uh, Lodge. And so that's where I, I recommend people stay. Now, I want to hear about this lodge, but I just want to throw this in there. You know, we've never been didactic on the RV Atlas podcast about saying you got to go everywhere by RV. And, you know, mm-hmm. we, I, I, it's my first choice, it's my favorite way to travel. But I do like to say to our listeners, um, sometimes it can be fun to do a National Park Lodge or to fly to a location and stay in a cabin. Different trips uh, are going to require different things and, and, and have uh, you know, different options that are really, really fun. So I'm, I'm thrilled to hear about this lodge. Now, this is actually a National Park Lodge, right? It's, or is it's it a concessionaire run? Oh, oh, it is private yeah. owned. Okay. So tell us about um, it. So it's... It's one of the most well-located lodges in all of the national parks. It overlooks um, 25 miles of glacier and is surrounded by 14 of the highest mountain peaks on the continent. I mean, when I say the views are just absolutely stunning. Um, the lodge consists of two main buildings. So you have the main lodge and then the south wing. And the main lodge is the original structure. It houses the, the lobby and the restaurant and 24 guest rooms. Nearly every inch of this place is covered in memorabilia from the copper mining days, which it was really interesting. Um, it's also important to know, though, that the rooms here are smaller and uh, they typically they don't have any ensuite bathrooms. So there are seven bathrooms and six shower rooms that are shared. 
For that reason, I strongly suggest you stay in the other building, which is the more modern south wing, uh, which has larger rooms and ensuite bathrooms. Um, and the majority of the guests here opt for a meal plan, so like a three meals a day plan, um, dinner is served family style. And again, for obvious reasons, right? You are remote, like there, there are no um, restaurants around the corner. So it's very much kind of like a European feel to it where you go to a lodge and then you're, you're sharing a meal with the other people who are staying there. Was the food good? The food was good. It was good. So what are some of like the other, you know, the awesome things that you did while you were, while you were there? And and if you want to throw in anything else about the lodge, please do. Yeah. Well, on the first day we toured the copper mine, which for the most part is still intact. Um, That's how this, this area all came to be, right? It has a very interesting um, history. But on the second day, uh, our family booked a trip with St. Elias Alpine Guides to go ice climbing. And I have to say, this is probably, well, it is the most memorable experience we've ever had in a national park. Um, I would say it's probably one of our most memorable travel experiences, period. Um, It's physically demanding. You walk nine miles. Five of those miles are like in heavy climbing boots with crampons and you're carrying gear. Um, Mind you, our guide was this 20 something superhuman who was carrying an 80 pound pack. So like you can't complain because he's carrying a lot more gear than you are. Um, So you hike from the lodge to Root Glacier and then across this moraine to your first uh, climbing site. And it's a a very impressive like 100 um, foot ice face. And you get a lesson, you grab your ice tools and then you climb on. So it's, you know, it's like, one of these um, with the ice picks and it, it's, it's an adventure. Um, and then after our second climb, our boys did something that my husband and I refused to do. Um, they jumped into one of those like sapphire blue glacial pools. You probably have seen pictures of them. Um, the temperature was about 28 degrees in the water. I have never seen my boys scramble out of water so quickly. It was, it, yeah, I, again, I'm not doing it. They did it. It was an experience. On a scale of one to 10, though, like your your family is pretty close to a 10 on the adventurous scale. And also, I think, you know, I, you have pretty athletic kids from what I understand, right? There are a few things that we won't try. That is true. Uh, there are a few things that you won't try. Yeah, it seems no, like- there are, Like very few, like I, the only thing that I would say that we- I I put like a hard stop to is um, bungee jumping. We haven't been bungee jumping, but we've done a lot of um, a, a lot of things that one might question my parenting. I guess I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I love my <laughs> oh, kids you, to you, do quite no, a few things. I, you're doing it exactly right. You've raised ad- adventurous kids. Um, <laughs> so so what? Anything else? Like any other great things that you did, or what else do we want to say about visiting here? Yeah. So like on the return trip, as we're hiking back, um, the boys scrambled down with a guide on this like sheer cliff, right, to explore an ice cave that's here. And they reported back that it was really cool. Um, I I saw the pictures, but at that point, my husband and I were spent like we we had reached our 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 physical capabilities. So they had that adventure on their own. Um, And then there's also a nearby town called McCarthy. And 
This town is sort of legendary in Alaska. Um, we happened to be there on July 4th, which just was really good timing. Um, so they have this annual parade in McCarthy, which is so Alaskan. It runs through the town, which is all of like six blocks maybe. Um, and half the town participates in the parade while the other half spectates. And then they go around the corner and then these two groups switch. And so that the other half participates in the parade while the other half uh, is spectating. And it was like the whole thing was just so homespun and it's so Alaska. So Alaska. I mean, I just I still chuckle like when I think of um, celebrating July 4th in McCarthy. Is Alaska one of your favorite states? I love Alaska. I, I kind of have a thing about polar regions. Um, I love the, um, Lapland and Finland. I've loved visiting Antarctica. Um, and I love Alaska. All right. Anything else on Wrangell St. Elias before we sort of wrap up? I have a couple kind of bigger, broader questions for you about national parks. Yeah. Just like my strongest recommendation. I, I just think this park is something and, um, nobody knows about it and it's the largest and i just think that it's um a spectacular place so kind of you know pivoting and just wrapping things up and, and going big picture for a minute if you've inspired somebody out there listening to try and make this a goal you know to visit all 63 national parks which which what a great life goal um you, you did give some tips along the way but but any other tips for somebody who might be you know sitting there at age 30 or 40 or, or 50 or whatever age it is right because we, we talked about grandma joy's road trip um and how she completed this as well for, you know forget the age just for anybody that wants to do this in terms of planning or making it happen any any big tips well i would say that you don't have to visit all 63 to have a goal. Like some of these parks are admittedly very difficult and can be very expensive to get to. So, you know, America Samoa, which we went to um, just recently, uh, you know, that's an expensive trip. Uh, that's a, that's a, a flight uh, to Hawaii from, for us, that's a six hour flight um, to Hawaii and then another six hours on to America, Samoa. And that's going to be cost prohibitive um, for some people. I'm not, I'm not going to lie about that. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't still try to get to as many as possible. Um, one thing that we did is we had a, a smaller class A at the beginning of our RV journey um, and then we upgraded to a larger class A. And before we did the upgrade, we did some research and figured out what all the length limitations were in the park. And so we made sure that we um, visited all those um, smaller length requirement parks while we had the smaller RV. That's very and then when smart. We made the, yeah. And then when we made the jump, um, because we don't tow. And I, I think you and I have had conversations before, like we're one of those few class A folks um, who do not tow. I don't like to tow. Um, and so we have made this work with the, the rig we have. Um, and so doing a little pre-planning like that helped. Even I, I love that as a tip and, and even maybe starting to think through, well, these are the ones I'll take my RV to. Uh, these are maybe I'll fly here. 
maybe I'll stay in a national park lodge here. Maybe I have a friend that lives near this mm-hmm. one. Um, sh- strategizing that way. And I also really do love the idea of maybe your goal doesn't have to be to visit all 63, but maybe your goal is like, I want to get to 10 and then go from there. You know, I want to go to 10 national parks or I want to do all the national parks uh, on the West Coast. Whatever that is, those smaller goals can then can then lead to the larger goals as as well. So um, mm-hmm. now, with all of this national park experience, what what makes a great national park to you? What are what are the absolute essential qualities to make a, a national park excellent and wonderful? Because you're you're not uh, afraid to say when you don't like one. <laughs> I yes, they're. There is a very short list of uh, parks that I put in the category of not worth your time, um, but uh, still went to because, you know, we had this particular goal. Um, What makes a national park? I've actually, a great national park, I've actually thought about this question a lot. Um, And I would say that first, it's stunning beauty. Um, You know, I'm a photographer. I love drop dead, gorgeous scenery. And so... I I want to be someplace that's beautiful. Um, second, I would say are unique land features. The park needs to be distinctive for me and, and look like no other place in the world. And so many of our national parks are otherworldly, right? Um, and third, I think this has probably come through. This is a big one for our family. There's got to be something special for us to do. Um, my sons are adventure junkies and we're always looking to like one up the last adventure. So, um, if it's ice climbing and wrangle St. Elias, then you're, we're there, we're going to do that. And, and those are the kinds of experiences that just add to our, our national park journey. I think that last one's super important for everyone listening and as kids, uh, I, I could go to a national park and hike every day. And uh, that's, you know, for Max and Theo and Wes, that will become a drag at a certain mm-hmm. point. Uh, where if there are those other special adventures, whether it's whitewater rafting or the ice climbing or whatever it might be, um, I think that's very important if you're traveling with kids. My last question for you, Shelley, is, you know, at some point this summer, you're going to finish the 63 national parks. I guess this is a, a, maybe a two-parted question. Which one then are you going to go back to? For Is, is there one that's like, oh, my God, I got to get back here? Or is it going to be more like, let's go to Disney World and just like not do it like, or just what a resort or like, let's go to Cancun or like, like, okay, I did national parks, like give me cocktails on the beach. Like, like you're such a, a, a experienced world traveler, uh, you know, like, well, then what's next after a goal like this? Don't just sit home and watch TV. No, no, I would never do that. Cause I, I really enjoy traveling. Um, and I think that, you know, having, uh, been in the business I, I, I have, as far as a, a travel writer and editor, I've been really fortunate to go to a lot of, um, places outside the country, but it's a really big world. Um, and so I have kind of a, a short list of, of places that we would like to get to internationally in the next, um, five months, um, or five years, uh, but I will say, you know, there was a recent news article about um, our, our grandma friend uh, who was 93 and, and completed her national park quest with her grandson. And it kind of made me think, like, 
would I do this all over again? Maybe with my grandkids. Like, wow. I started, I started to think about, I'm not sure I can convince my husband to do it, but um, <laughs> I, I, I kind of, that, that idea really sort of appeals to me, like going back to at least a lot of these parks. Oh my God. Um, that's such when a, I had grandkids. Be, be amazing. Um, I've always said that for Stephanie and I, the second trip to a place is almost every single time it is better. And people don't believe me and people, oh, you went there. Why do you want to go back? I, you know, I think that if we go back to Yellowstone, it'll be better. I think if mm. we go back to Glacier, it'll be better because you, you can hone in more precisely on what you liked, what you didn't like, revisit places that gave you great joy and cross off some of the things you didn't do. So that is an amazing, amazing idea. Well, and what I think is is important about what you just said is that the first time you go, you have to hit all the musts, right? Like you're going to Yellowstone, so you have to you have to go to Old Faithful. You have to, you know, there's this this checklist of things that you you have to go to. The second time, you can go to all the places nobody goes to um because you you've been to the to the must-sees. Um, and in my experience, the places that people are less likely to be are sometimes the best places, um, because you're experiencing them without the crowds, without the hustle bustle, without some of the commercialization, um, that can happen in our national park. So, um, I'm with you. I, I think that there's nothing wrong with a second visit to some place spectacular. Well, that what a great way to end this episode. Thank you so, so much for such a wonderful episode and for all the great content over the years. Uh, where can we find you, follow you, find some of your other work um, if, if people want more of Shelly? Yeah, um, please follow uh, at Kid Tripster, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, we post uh, trips there and then content online at kidtripster.com. And we will have you back in, I guess, like the August timeframe. Does that make sense? I, I think I'll have recovered by then. So I think we're good. <laughs> okay. Th Shelly, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the RV Atlas. To find out more about the topics discussed on this show, head on over to thervatlas.com. And to join the friendliest group of RVers, head on over to the RV Atlas group on Facebook and make sure to join us on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at the RV Atlas. If you enjoy our show, please consider leaving us a review over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And we will see you at the campground. See you at the campground. <laughs>